Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. (laughs) 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. After the Thin Man is over. What do you mean, illiterate? My mother and father were married right here in the city hall. Not yet. Any complaints or suggestions? Few. You don't scold, you don't nag, and you look far too pretty in the mornings. All right, I'll remember. Must scold, must nag, mustn't be too pretty in the mornings. We're talking about After the Thin Man. This is a sequel to, guess what, The Thin Man. Uh, next in the series, I won't say uh, sequel, though it does pick up uh, as the last movie uh, left off. This is uh, uh, this is a Dashiell Hammett uh, murdery mystery uh, whodunity kind of kind of thing. Is it is ever? It is. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Continuation of the story of Nick and Nora Charles. We love Nick and Nora Charles, and I would like to start by saying I think Nick Charles is more consistently inebriated in this movie than he was in the one prior. Is that possible? Really? I, I thought he was more inebriated less? in the last film. Interesting. I don't feel like he was as inebriated in this film. I don't think we saw him drinking as much in this film, but... My goodness, he just is so drunk all the time. <laughs> he just is never sober. I guess it's just a character thing, maybe. But he is not a great role model for relationships with alcohol. Let's just say that. <laughs> different time, different time. Different indeed, time. Indeed, indeed. Yes, this True. is After the Thin Man. This is the next, or actually, this is a continuation of a film. We covered the the Thin Man film when we did our black and white cinematography of James Wong How series uh, a few years ago and we decided we'd love to look at the rest of this series so now we're going to be talking about uh, the rest of the Thin Man films. This is after the Thin Man which came out in 1936. As far as its ratings it passed. That was, that's that's how the ratings go back then. <laughs> 1936 it passed. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like high school. Yes, yeah, right. talking on our pre-show uh, for members, if you'd like to become a member and get a little access to the uh, uh, longer uh, version of this episode, the member-only version of this episode, all you have to do is visit thenextreel.com slash membership, and uh, you can uh, join in. And we'd love to have you there. And when you do that, you can jump into the live stream and actually chat along with us as we are recording. And uh, one of our fantastic members, uh, Stieg, said that the first film is required in the way that The Thin Man, the first movie, is the best of the series. And I feel like this movie, I already disagree. And I've only seen now these two. I haven't seen the others in the series. If they're all downhill from here, that's fine. But I really enjoyed my time with this movie. I really did. I loved every bit of it. I did, too. I also enjoyed this one better than the first film, which I just rewatched um, like a few weeks ago and also really, really, truly enjoyed. But I felt like the mystery in this one was a little more complex, a little more interesting, a lot more uh, fun characters to really enjoy and dig into in this particular film. And so, yeah, I I 
it's it's so easy to enjoy Nick and Nora Charles anyway. I mean, their comedy, their lines, their moments that they have together. I mean, they make these films such easy things to watch that I absolutely can't wait to see where we go from here because I just I absolutely loved this one. I, I related to Andy. There's a whole sub story uh, family romance about dogs in this movie. <laughs> yes. That is like unironic, unsubtitled. Asta gets credited <laughs> and Mrs. Asta. And then Mrs. Asta is promptly like painted <laughs> as the local hussy who's been sleeping yes. around while they've been out of town with this uh, little black, um, uh, what is it, an Irish, uh, like an Irish, not an Irish setter. What is that dog? Like a Scott, is uh, a Scotty, right? That's not a Scotty. What is that little? There's no way that's uh, a Scotty. It's like a little is Scottish a, terrier that Scottish in. terrier is a is much smaller. It was it's right. A, it was a very small little black dog that was coming in to the yard. Oh, oh! I thought that was just a puppy of the like the runt of the litter. There was a little black puppy, but it was because that black dog had been sneaking under the fence, and it looked oh. like a little Scottish terrier who had. See, Andy, I got my dog characters all mixed up. Oh my gosh! You're right. You it was blind? an affair. It was a. It <laughs> yes, was of course a, it was it an was affair. affair. They're like of all mixed was. black and white. Asta and I Mrs. Asta are both pure white. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that whole thing. Oh wow! <laughs> oh no! The movie has so many layers. <laughs> so many layers. I didn't even get. <laughs> that is, that too is amazing. Funny. Too funny. Yes, oh. yes. All those children that Asta is now going to have to take care of, they're not even his own uh, children. He's not even his own, but he's a good father, and so he's going to stand by the family. That's what I got out of it, right? He will. He absolutely will. Now that he's scared away uh, that that Scottish terrier, uh, never trust those Scotsmen. <laughs> <laughs> That's for you, Stephen. <laughs> Okay, so there was the whole thing with the dogs, which is amazing. And, of course, Asta was in the first uh, film as, as well. Uh, great uh, addition. And, but this movie, we expand uh, now that Nick and Nora are back. They are very famous just in the world. And the, she has a lot of money, and he was a notable, uh, you know, private detective and uh, has kind of a history of solving crimes. And so they come back and everybody was looking forward to seeing them return back to San Francisco, their hometown, to right. San Francisco. And uh, we immediately get thrust into the the world of in-laws of we, we go over to Nora's family's house where it's just a family full of old people and one young person and the whole family tree is about to rot and die because they're all only old people left. <laughs> Which is amazing uh, in, in terms of a choice. But it does give us a lot of wonderful characters. Um, so what would you think? Well, yeah. So we're starting off. Well, well first off, I, I just want to say we're getting a great setup of kind of the two worlds that our characters come from. We're getting the sense of Nick coming from a world of less respectable people. Everyone who seems to know him as soon as they get to San Francisco are the former hoods or current hoods. Uh, you know, all of the people like the boxers, the, the people that Nora normally wouldn't associate with. And I like that, you know, she has that great line early in the film where she's just like, um, oh, you you wouldn't know, like when they say hi to that, that old rich couple who passes by and he's like, who are they? She's like, oh, you wouldn't know, honey, they're respectable. Yeah. And, and so we're, <laughs> right. we're painting this picture of, you know, I, I don't want to say the haves and the have-nots, but certainly people who are of station. And Nora's family definitely um, has money and her... <laughs> 
Her aunt, uh, Catherine, absolutely hates Nicholas, who she always calls Nicholas. <laughs> yeah. Always made me laugh. But, um, yeah, so, so instantly we're set up in this situation at that big family dinner where Aunt Catherine, uh, and all of the relatives, like they, they keep <laughs> talking to Nora about, oh, you poor thing, because she is with this guy who is so beneath them all. I thought it was a fantastic setup for all of this as far as kind of giving us this kind of sense of the world and also just allowing for some fun play between Nick and Nora as far as like the way that he is reacting to everything. Like his line at the very beginning is they're standing at the door waiting for the the butler to open the door. He's mumbling to himself. She's like, what was that, Derek? He's like, oh, nothing, just you know, getting all my bad words out before we go in or something like that. <laughs> Well, this is an interesting, that's a, a really good point. And it's uh, one of my notes is just how well, you know, this screenplay, uh, Albert Hackett and, and Francis Goodrich um, handle big groups. And part of it is the legacy of the Dashiell Hammett stuff. Like, I mean, so much of it is let's get everyone in a room together and the murderer is here at the table right now kind of a moment. But all of that hinges on being able to write character exchanges with a lot of people in the room at the same time. And I think that what we get in the beginning at that table is is just some really fun banter between. And then it's contrasted immediately after when all of the ladies retri- retire to the drawing room for some music that what's-her-name isn't actually playing on the piano because she kind of freaks out. But in the meantime, Nick is sitting there uh, at the table having a conversation with uh, all of the sleeping old men. And I love that sequence. Like, it's such a great contrast between, uh, you know, all of those sort of dialogue moments. I, I, yeah, it was a hoot. They were great watching the the interplay between all of those characters who were over there, including the butler who was so old that, uh, you know, just putting your, like when Nick puts his coat on his arm, practically knocks the guy down. Like he can barely handle any of that anymore. So it played uh, really well. I enjoyed the way all of that stuff played. And it also, as you said, introduces us to Selma, who is Nora's cousin, and the really part of the reason that they're here, because this whole dinner, like... Selma's husband has disappeared, and they kind of want Nick and Nora to uh, track him down, uh, despite Aunt Catherine's misgivings in the whole thing. I don't know how much we want to go into the actual mystery, but I do have a question that may lead us down that road. When is a murder mystery overcomplicated? Well, I, I suppose when it, if it hits a point where the elements don't seem to, like, it just seems too convoluted, it takes too much time trying to piece it all together, I guess? Yeah, I think so. I found myself thinking that during this movie that it became perilously close to overcomplicating itself. There were there were three total murders and the twisty twists leading us to the end. By the time the final body falls out of the basket, I thought, okay, now you're leading me down this this road where it's it, it might be too much. I found the ultimate resolution satisfying and I understood it. And that sort of pulls me back from the edge. But I thought if there is a movie that dances on that edge, it, it might be this one might be a great example. I liked it because in the scope of what we're doing with a murder mystery, like having those surprising twists with different bodies popping up makes for, uh, you know, adds to that mystery. Like, how does this janitor in a basement hamper tie into all of this? Like, trying to figure all of that out. Like, I, I found it really interesting. I thought it worked in a way that allowed for the mystery in this particular film to make sense. 
I mean, t- to your point, I think the challenge then is trying to figure out, okay, how can we tie all of this together in a way that satisfies the audience? And and I suppose to a certain extent, you do get a little bit of that where it's like, okay, and you know, just for the audience listening, if you haven't seen these, we're going to be spoiling these movies. We're going to be revealing uh, who who done it in every case. So you want to make sure that you have watched the movie beforehand, because after this point, spoilers are going to happen. Every podcast seems to have a spoiler horn. I think we need a sound. Like a spoiler groan, spoiler groan, spoiler whimper, <laughs> spoiler. We need to we need to come up with a spoiler sound that we That's can right. put in for some of these things. I uh, okay, so good. the The word is out. Yeah, the word is out. We're going to spoil it starting now. So David did it, and <laughs> David did all of it. David He's did the worst. He's such a naughty boy. And it's Jimmy Stewart. And it's Jimmy Stewart, which is great. Well, it's early Jimmy Stewart, so I don't yes. think people had quite the connection to him we yet. We didn't know we loved Jimmy Stewart We yet. didn't know we loved him, exactly. No. But anyway, you have to somehow now, once that big uh, reveal happens, and I love the way that the whole thing plays out at the end with Nick playing everybody, trying to figure out, trying to get somebody to to you know spill the beans and how he finally uh, connects the dots that's, that somebody had already admitted it essentially but then trying to pinpoint okay so now that you know david killed the janitor because that's kind of the first thing and then he's like okay so david killed the janitor that means that he's covering something up so that he he killed robert Uh, but then the middle guy it's like okay so now how do you connect him to the middle guy and it all tied to the fact that the middle guy who had been dancer um, yeah bunny not bunny uh what well, was the dancer polly not dancer polly's husband although she she painted him as her brother to dancer that he had in the past been in prison because he um was blackmailing somebody and and found out that he knew about um what david was up to was trying to blackmail him and so that's why david blackmailed him and so you end up having to come up with some story that covers all of that that will make sense once it's revealed and then you have to go then you have to be able to play it backward or go from the beginning and watch through it again and go okay do, does everything that david is doing make sense does all of it play fairly logically and i i think for the most part it does like i um i'd seen this twice now and so um i knew that he had done it and so i was able to watch it with that in mind and I think it works. And so that's, I think, one of the big challenges of these sorts of stories is, will it work on multiple viewings? And when you tie all the pieces together, is there logic there? Yeah. I, and I think so. This was my first time watching it was yesterday. And um, and I think it I think it does hold up on first viewing. I didn't watch, you know, kind of throwing my hat in the air, frustrated. Like I, there were some things I had to go back, like I read the plot synopsis to, to kind of remind myself all of the names and interactions, the, especially the Polly, Dancer, Robert, all of those were progressive complications, right? It starts with Selma wondering where her husband is. Then we learn, oh, I'm wondering where he is, but I also kind of don't care. Like she was already dealing with this, like, I don't really, he doesn't, love me. Actually, we're not in a a great relationship. So maybe I just need to leave with David. Progressively complicating the fact that Robert's actually in this Chinese dance club. And there that introduces us to this whole additional world of twists that tie back to Selma. I think it it 
it all the the layers actually work and are revealed in a way that I think are clear throughout, particularly after you've seen it once and watch it again. I, I found it enormously gratifying that that one point where Pedro falls out of the basket in the basement. I thought, OK, that's that might be too many. But the fact that it comes back to like that resolution, I thought might have been cheeky. But in 1936 feels really solid that that it was David who said, I remembered his white mustache uh, from six years ago. And yet Nick finds the picture that says six from six years ago and the mustache was black. Yeah, right, right. That that's a note that feels like a superhero detective would be able to catch, even though I didn't. <laughs> right. And I thought that was that was satisfying. You know what I mean? And the filmmakers, uh, W.S. Van Dyke, who directed this, like he did the first film, understood, like, he knows how to play the mystery because when David says that, there is a cutaway to, uh, to Nick catching that and hearing that and kind of giving him a look like, oh, okay, connecting to the fact that that is a note that Nick just uh, made and he's holding it in his head as potentially something that he might need. Yeah, right. The one story thread that I... I feel never really quite ends up going somewhere is Lum, the uh, dancer's business partner in um, the Chinese restaurant, which was called the Lai Chi. Lai Chi Club. So, so I understand that Dancer and Polly were essentially uh, stealing money. They had they were forging checks using Robert's name to take all this money from uh, from Aunt Catherine and. Uh, and Lum, like, I, I wasn't quite sure exactly what was going on with Lum. And I guess that was one additional red herring that was thrown in that I wasn't sure if there was a reason. Because we have that moment when, um, early in the film, when Dancer, um, he sneaks out to go, I can't remember where he's going, but everybody kind of, it, it everybody disappears at the same time to give us a whole bunch of red herrings so we're not sure who killed robert that's the structure of any sort of murder mystery is going to need to have robert or a dancer goes out and then as soon as he goes out the door lum gets off the phone and hops gets his coat and runs out the door to follow him so he's out there too but remind me, by the time we get to the end, there never really is any reason to have ever, like, the, Lum never ended up, that storyline never goes anywhere. Like, why did he sneak out? Do you, do you remember? Functionally, my understanding of Lum's character is, one, we introduce him as a guy who was a potential foil to Nick because Nick put his cousin away. Right. Or brother, cousin or brother. Anyway, a family member of Lum away and that that family member still has like five years left on his sentence so that was his brother that sets us that brother so that sets us up as understanding that potentially lum has a grudge against nick and that we should keep an eye out for lum because he might be standing in the way of nick getting his solving this mystery and in the end when it is revealed that lum actually was not speaking sarcastically uh in the beginning when he says you know you're my friend he was i you really are my friend you put my brother away and i actually like my brother's girl so i'm fine keep him in jail like that to me was the was the function of the character in the narrative as a potential spoiler for nick and that keeps us on our on the edge but it is ultimately a red herring right because it, it just like the fact that he goes out after dancer yeah it just it almost sets it I don't up think there's and, and nick, any yeah and yeah. nick sees both of them go out so he knows they're out there robert's out there um selma's out there david's out there 
Polly's out there. Polly's uh, husband is out there. Like so many people are out there. But yeah, the lum the lum line was just a little thing that I was like, I'm not quite sure if that one really worked. But I think your point is good that he really ends up being just another foil uh, for Nick in the story. Yeah. That that maybe he didn't maybe we weren't intended to to rope him into the story. Or again, to your point, if he's just a red herring, he's just a red herring. Yeah. He's right. just a distraction. So which part of the fine. trope. Which is fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's all fun. Yeah. All fun. It's all fun. Yeah. That ends up being the story. And in the end, the the only last bit during the big resolution when David says, I got uh so I got five bullets or six bullets in this gun, one for me, one for Selma, and the rest for any of you that try to to stop us, stop me. Yeah. Right. The twist that he actually hates Robert for stealing Selma, but also hates Selma for her part in their emotional relationship for leaving him and going with Robert. Was that enough for you? I thought it was actually uh, an interesting twist that he also hated her because you could have painted it that he wanted to kill Robert so that he could get her, you know, Um, but he, but that's not the the case. And so I thought it was an interesting direction to say, Oh, he also hates her. He's working with, uh, not working with, Aunt Catherine, but essentially, I suppose you could say in some way supporting Aunt Catherine to bring in this doctor to, you know, essentially make Selma think she's mad and kind of like doing these little things. No, I think it plays fine. I I think they're probably if he really did hate her and wanted to really gaslight her uh, pre gaslight because that term wasn't even invented yet. But essentially gaslighting her to help really make her think she's crazy i think they could have played that up even more but you don't want to make your potential hero seem like the the bad guy right out of the gate because that's going to give it away well that's a really good point though i mean in terms of armchair redirection they had this great opportunity in the character the doctor character he was diabolical like he was played as just a, a real malcontent of the psychological healing community. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like they that is one area where I think you might be right. Like we didn't need David to be portrayed as someone who was actively gaslighting Selma because David, we find out, you know, we could find out in the big reveal that it was David who puts this guy in the in the house to actually make her think she's she's crazy all along. And uh, and maybe that would have been enough. I, I did feel like that character of the, the doctor was underused and I didn't understand why he was he was there and that he and Aunt Catherine were so hell bent on Selma uh, staying at home and not making the phone calls. Like why? What I Selma was not portrayed as a character that needed that kind of help. So there was some sort of manipulation going on and it wasn't clear to me their justification for treating some of the way they were. Well, it's also the 30s, and I, I think it was one of those periods where it's easy to, for people who don't want their name to potentially get smudged in any way, like Aunt Catherine certainly seemed to be. She didn't want to go to the police because she didn't want people to think there were issues, like that whole side of her story. Bringing in a doctor to if you have a, a a daughter who's married to someone you don't like and the marriage is in trouble and she's distressed, I feel like there is that 
you know, I don't know if it's a trope, but it certainly seems like something of the time where you just kind of medicate them and keep them quiet so you don't have to acknowledge that there's a problem. So I felt like it was more of that and less something that was designed to be a big plot thread. I get, I get it. I just feel like in order for that foundational element, like or or that it, it maybe should have or could have been a foundational element to the story and ultimately because they didn't anchor that doctor with any real authority or or sort of power in keeping her in the house, it ended up being kind of a non-issue. And so that's I guess that's what I'm saying. It just could have been written as a stronger foil to Selma getting the word out about why she's so worried about Robert or why she is having such trouble that, you know, they're evildoers, Aunt Catherine and the doctor. Yeah. And I guess that's... uh definitely an element i mean we get a sense of that at the end when nick is kind of going around the room and talking about you did this and you did this because as it turns out so often in this type of story a lot of these people are doing things that they really shouldn't right you find out aside from david killing those three people we learn about all the stuff that dancer and and polly had been doing as far as forging checks but then it also you know there's this thing where he kind of reveals that aunt catherine had been paying people off to kind of keep things hushed about all of this and that was something that it seems like selma wasn't uh, clued in on and so that was kind of the reveal and so i guess to that end there is an element that that could have played a little cleaner as far as connecting all of the dots with what Aunt Catherine had been doing behind Selma's back to kind of hush things up. Yeah, I, I guess that's all I'm saying. Just in, again, n not that I <laughs> at all want to, um, you know, besmirch the writing styles of Goodrich and Hackett. They're amazing at what they do. Yeah, and no, uh, this is a really tight story. It just feels like a, a potential thing that struck out to me. Yeah. In a movie where very little stuff, very few things stick out to me. Right, right, right. No, it's a, it's an interesting little point for sure. Yeah. You mentioned the screenwriters, Albert Hackett, Francis Goodrich. They were a married couple of screenwriters who had been collaborating together since early in their marriage. I think 1931. Yeah. Uh, they got married in 31, and then they had been uh, working together. They were one of Hollywood's most successful screenwriting partnerships, turning out in excess of 30 scripts, mostly comedies and musicals, until until they retired in 1962. So. Very robust filmography, working on the first three of the Thin Man films. Yes, uh, and won the Pulitzer for uh, Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, yep. If anyone ever performed the Diary of Anne Frank in high school, this they are responsible for it. And uh, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Tis the season. Go watch It's a Wonderful Life. Father's Little Dividend, Father of the Bride, are both of those. They did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Just a lot of projects that they had worked on over the uh, over the decades. Yeah. And adapting Dashiell Hammett and you know Dashiell Hammett I think there is a um, an element to Dashiell Hammett's novels. I mean they're the ones I, I think I've only read gosh which ones did I read? I don't think I read I, I think it was probably Maltese Falcon. I mean very brief, very quick read and very enjoyable read. Yeah. But I mean as, as somebody who's kind of a, a deft writer of these of these uh, great little detective stories, I think that it. I think they capture that essence well. Kind of that quick dialogue, the the way that this sort of Hammett. I always associate with noir, uh, which is probably only because of the Maltese Falcon. 
Um, but I think that when you look at the way that this dialogue plays, it's comedy dialogue. But I think that the the banter pattern kind of also fits the noir uh, banter pattern as far as kind of those quick lines thrown back and forth. And I think that's something that comes from Hammett. I'm like you. Like, I actually have Hammett books. I think somebody for Christmas when I was younger gave me the collected Hammett, right? It includes a bunch of novels like a Maltese Falcon and Glass Key and Thin Man's in there and uh, I and a couple of others. And I've I've never actually cracked it open beyond the Maltese Falcon. <laughs> like it's, oh. <laughs> it's, it's so big. It's kind of daunting. <laughs> so I need separate little books. The one big book is, is too, too much book. <laughs> it's heavy and I fall asleep and it falls on my face. Uh, but I, this this is one of those that made me revisit. Like I, I want to go back in and, um, and and check out some of these old books because they're really fun. And 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 I, I think certainly worth at least reading the ones that are, are subject to the adaptations. I wonder how much of a parallel Dashiell Hammett's adaptations might be to, you know, Stephen King and his adaptations. <laughs> like, that would be an interesting one for you to follow. Yeah, right. Although I don't think... There certainly aren't as many. No, I don't think there's nearly... I, he only has, what, like, a few novels. The rest of it is just real short stories that short he's stories, kind of written. Yeah. And so, I, I don't know, I guess I'd be curious to watch, like, read some more of his books, because, I mean, you know, if they're like the Maltese Falcon, they're very quick reads, and then watch some of the other adaptations and see uh, see what I think, so. For sure. Um, W.S. Van Dyke uh, directed, did, what did, uh, who also directed the first film, um, the last one is part of our, as I said, um, black and white cinematography of uh, James Wong Howe. This one, uh, that was the only one James Wong Howe was involved in. Now we're at Oliver T. Marsh. As far as the direction and the look of the film, are you noticing anything different with this one that stands out from the last one or just anything about this one in particular? Well, the first observation, did you happen to watch the theatrical trailer for this for this movie? It's really funny. I must have because I put it in the last last week's show, but I just yeah, I can't remember. That's true. You must have. The all of the text is about all of the people who are who are back for this movie that made the first movie. Like still uh William Powell and Myrna Loy and also staying with the picture W.S. Van Dyke and uh, <laughs> like all the people who are consistent over time like they're really leaning in on the the people who have stayed with it so so that this project will look and feel familiar you're coming back into a universe that you've expected you've enjoyed the thin man you are all but guaranteed to love this movie i uh, i i it felt of a piece to me like we talk about the you know movies that pick up right when their their predecessor ended this it felt like it could very well have been a movie to me, like we could have just watched a three hour film and it could have been the whole thing and felt really fine. Like there was nothing about this in terms of Van Dyke's direction, in terms of their performances that felt anything less. And I will say Oliver T. Marsh, I think, uh, did an able job at picking up the look and feel of the film. I, it, there was nothing in here that looked to me like it was less than the first movie. It was enjoyable. It was interesting. It was compelling, uh, you know, angles and shots like it lived up to the first movie for me. You? Well, I, I think it has the right balance between kind of the uh, shadowy darker scenes the foggy scenes and the more playful 
New Year's party scenes, things like that. I think there's a good balance that that he captures in those. In fact, even at the at the final confrontation with kind of the reveal with all of the the people in the room, David's face suddenly has more shadows on it once it kind of goes through the reveal as he kind of moves toward the window, and kind of putting him into a shadowier look gives him a creepier look, and it worked really well. And so, yeah, I think I think that Oliver T. Marsh did fine. I mean, you know, James Wong Howe. I love seeing what he does in film. But, you know, I thought Oliver T. March did a great job and he will continue on only the next one, um, another thin man. So we'll talk about him next time. Uh, we talked about him before when we talked about the women, though. There's another project that he had worked on. I like W.S. Van Dyke. I think that as as a filmmaker, he's capturing this story well and he knows when to let the camera linger on Nick and Nora's face. I mean, both of them have absolutely brilliant reactions with each other. And I'm really going to enjoy seeing these two actors evolve over the course of the series because already just watching their relationship play, I mean, one of my favorite scenes is the scene when the two of them are in bed and you have Nick trying to fall asleep and Nora wakes up and she starts talking to Nick. Are you hungry? I Scrambled eggs? No, I don't really want scrambled eggs. Can you reach the water? And he passes it. Oh, no, I was just making sure you could reach it. Like this whole thing that they keep doing back and forth. And then finally, he's just like, all right, I'll go make you some scrambled eggs. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad you're hungry, too. Like the way that scene plays was just absolutely brilliant. And W.S. Van Dyke is somebody who understands how to let like capture these actors so that giving them the the space and the frames that they need to give their performances and make them work well and and also written by a married couple yeah right yeah, like true. that was like even if they don't talk to one another that way it was aspirationally like built on their relationship it just felt so personal and funny and that's what makes it funny right it's that it just feels it's effortless yeah absolutely definitely definitely all right you want to talk about the Hayes Code a little bit? Oh, always. <laughs> <laughs> are you a real are you a real pre-code or post-code kind of guy? <laughs> I can't remember if we talked about it much um when we talked about the Thin Man cuz that one was it was a few years ago as we mentioned. Yeah, I think we did because it was one of those it was it was a Hayes Code film, right? The, the other one. And this one wasn't. This one was postcode, as I understand it. I don't know. I mean, it really ran from the 30s to the 60s. It was it, there was quite a period. Or was at what am I switching that? It was it like the the first one was pre-code and this one was code. The first one. And now I got to remember what year the first one came out. Uh, the Thin Man, 1934. So, uh, yeah, the Hayes Code started right around this time, 1934. Yeah. So. Which is why that my memory of our conversation, and I haven't gone back to listen to the to our first conversation before this, but I probably should, um, is that there was a lot of booze in the first one, like just bottles and bottles of booze. And this one, he portrays drunk, like I said earlier, but he's not shown drinking as much. And that's probably a Cody thing. Well, that's and that may be why I reacted the way I did when you said that, because, yeah, I mean, he he's pouring drinks a few times, like the one where she's talking about 
they're in their kitchen at the New Year's, the surprise New Year's party, which no, uh, it was hilarious because it's at their house for them and nobody there knows who they are. And so they're just walking around anonymously in their house, except in the servants, like when they go into the kitchen and all the servants, of course, recognize them. But as she's talking about how they're going to over to Aunt Catherine's and she's talking about all the relatives who are there, he keeps pouring more into his cup and then more into his glass and then more and then more and then, and then finally gives it to her and takes it like a an out cup and just starts filling that. So, I mean, there were moments where there was a lot of pouring of alcohol, but to your point, yeah, I think there's probably more drinking without seeing what, seeing the pouring happening, allowing for that to be a little safer, I suppose. Yeah. And even like, it's interesting because we start this film on the train, but at no point do we ever see them like, you know, in the bed together or anything like that. It's always like they're packing and stuff like that. And I know like Hitchcock notoriously used trains as a great way to, uh, well, other filmmakers too, but as, you know, going, the train going into the tunnel as ways to symbolize uh, the sex that's happening in the, in the train car. Yeah. But None of that really plays here. So it was interesting to see it, like, all of the stuff on the train was pretty safe. Uh, and, like, even when they kiss, there's that guy outside the window who's making faces at them, and they're like, we're married. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, yeah, you're right about the train. They heavy up on bunk beds, which is not a metaphor for sex, as far as I know. <laughs> How many bunk beds? Uh, big, maybe the only time where that <laughs> comes through. Okay, yeah. but I get to be on top. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, that's funny. Well, it, it it is interesting. It does feel a little bit, uh, you know, to to that end, more tame uh, in this movie. And I think for that reason, and maybe no other, it it'll be interesting to watch how the series progresses. And I, I mean, I, have you seen the? What of the other movies have you seen? I've only seen these two. Okay. And so uh, the rest of it will be new to me, and I'm definitely looking forward to jumping into the rest. And and two, I think two of the rest of them are code, but I guess the the fifth one, The Thin Man Goes Home, was released in 1945. That would have been produced under the Hayes Code, right? And and Song of the Thin Man, 1947. It'll be interesting to see what they're willing to play with in these movies, because these characters, I don't know if, if Nick is going to get any help with his alcohol issues. <laughs> My hunch is they'll still be there. Well, we've got a baby coming in the next one, and so I'm sure that will be played fairly safely. Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see exactly how how close to the line they ride. Because, I mean, this is a studio series. It's not like yeah, something right. that's done in one of the small uh, studios that's kind of a B-picture. These are, these are bigger films designed to appeal to big audiences. In the trailer, they say this movie is made the only the way Metro Goldwyn Mayer can make it right. Like they're really leaning into the the MGMiness of it, which yeah. you know they're proud of it. I I it, it will be interesting because I know that is a specific Hayes Code thing about child. You can't show childbirth. I don't imagine we're going to see Myrna Loy in silhouette even, which is called out as against the Hayes Code. No no childbirth. I imagine there will be a magical baby. Uh, well, I mean, she's pregnant at the end of this one, and I bet it starts and she's had the baby. And so if the, there will be a little more time passing between the two films, but not a lot. Yeah. Nine months. All right. Can't wait. I'm very excited for it. It will be fun. Well, we will be right back. But first, our credits.
The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Ziv Greenberg. Yuval Shapiro. Oriel Novella. And Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Uh, Andy, how did it do at award season? As we've discussed on the show, pretty much any time we're talking about these uh, films from uh, decades, ages ago, there weren't very many options as far as awards go. This film was nominated for one award. It didn't win. It was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Writing uh, Screenplay, lost to The Story of Louis Pasteur, which I have yet to see. Have you seen The Story of Louis Pasteur? Never seen it. Yeah, it's one of those biopics do you think more biopics should just take like this was very much a trope of old biopics i know i'm completely random tangent but do you think more biopics should just be the story of like like instead of rocket man the story of elton john yes i 100 percent agree because how else would you possibly know that it's about <laughs> elton john right exactly you need how to else know. will the future know that it's a story about andy nelson we could have had the stu- story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Like, I, I just think. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of RBG, that was not telling enough. <laughs> no, R- no, it was. Um, what was RBG's? Because that was a documentary. The, oh, the, it, was, the, it was. Yeah, it was uh, se- uh, um, sex and. Uh, the, uh, yeah. Come on now. <laughs> uh, uh, the nature, the nature of sex. No, the something of sex. It was the something of sex. The story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Totally so that terrible. was it. Uh, yeah. I, on I, the basis of sex. On the basis of sex. On the basis of sex. Now, I'm curious uh, if you've seen any of the other films nominated opposite this for uh, screenplay. We had, as I said, the story of Louis Pasteur, which won. Doddsworth. Did you ever see Doddsworth? No, never even heard of it. William Wyler's film. Uh, I is have it the not story of Doddsworth? Is it a- <laughs> the story of Doddsworth? A retired auto manufacturer and his wife take a long-planned European vacation only to find that they want very different things in life. Walter Houston and Ruth Chatterton. Never heard of it. A Sinclair Lewis uh, story. Oh, Mr. Deeds okay. Goes to Town. Have you seen that one? Oh, Mr. Deeds, yes. Frank Capra with Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur. That's the one where an unassuming greeting card poet from a small town in Vermont heads to New York City upon inheriting a massive fortune and is immediately hounded by those who wish to take advantage of him. And last but not least, My Man Godfrey, also with William Pell, this time with Carol Lombard. A scatterbrained socialite hires a vagrant as a family butler, but there's more to Godfrey than meets the eye. Sounds like down and out in Beverly Hills. <laughs> I, I suppose um, Gregory Lacava directed that one. I have not seen that one. The only one that I've seen at this point is Mr. Deeds Go to, Goes to Town. Right. And between the two, I would absolutely give After the Thin Man the Oscar. So I'm going to have yes. to watch the story of Louis Pasteur and see if that film warrants the win. I feel like it's easy to to keep the thin man in the public consciousness. Like I, Louis Pasteur, I've never even heard of, but because the thin man is part of a series of six movies, yeah, it's, it's easy to kind of keep talking about it. You've heard of Louis Pasteur though. Right. Okay. Just make sure I've you've heard, heard of, of Louis Pasteur. <laughs> Pasteur. 
<laughs> the way yes, you said I've that. Heard, <laughs> I was right. I was, Why I are they telling stories about people shorthand. I don't know? I have not heard of the story of Louis Pasteur. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. That's important clarification. I have heard of Louis Pasteur. That'll okay. be used out of context in the documentary about me. <laughs> the story of Pete Wright. <laughs> That's right. All right. But how about at the box office, Andy? How did it do at the box office? Well, the follow-up to the original film had a budget of an estimated 673000 or $12.4 million in today's dollars. The movie opened December 25th, Christmas Day, 1936, opposite the Shirley Temple film Stowaway. This film ended up becoming the fourth highest-grossing film of 1936, earning nearly $3.2 million, or $58.3 million in today's dollars. That lands it with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 409000 and sets the franchise on the right path. Outstanding. Well, I, as I said, I am thrilled that we are doing this series again because it was a real treat to revisit Nick and Nora. Uh, I love, I love this movie. I had a blast. Uh, it is exactly, it's like it was made for me. This franchise, I'm, I'm really glad we ended up putting this on the list because I have had uh, just a great time with both of these films. So I can't wait to continue with the rest of them. Well, we will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie. Another thin man. Do you think that's referring to the baby? He's going to be a very thin baby. Is the baby is a little thin man? They should have called it little thin man. <laughs> little thin man. That's what they should have called it. <laughs> Mommy, this is Creeps Binder. Remember? Creeps? Mm. Creeps, yeah, Creeps, you remember? Nick sent me up the river. Oh, it's nice you don't feel bad about it. Well, why should I? Gee, it took a genius to outsmart me. I want to touch me? I got rid of all those reporters. What'd you tell them? Told me we were out of scotch. What a gruesome thought. What do you want blasted? Man's just been killed. I think you boys better get out of here before the police arrive. Grab your kids! Holy smoke! What happened? If there were any reasonable chance for me to help you, it'd be different. But during this quiet little weekend in the country, my family's been threatened. I've had a knife thrown at me. I've been shot at, and I've been suspected of murder. Now on, this is your case. You handle it. I'm going back to New York and forget it. Come on, Mom. Letterboxd, Andrew. Letterboxd. It's our favorite social media uh, platform. It is the social media platform for movie lovers, and it's great. It's free. You can go over and sign up and share your reviews and star ratings and watch lists and subscribe to other people's watch lists. It's really, really great. Uh, if you would like to remove ads and support the fantastic uh, letterboxd team uh, you can do so by just visiting the nextreel.com slash letterbox they'll knock 20 percent off your uh, annual subscription and uh, that starts immediately join the club hang out and support this show and letterboxd and no ads the nextreel.com slash letterboxd andy what are you going to do for this movie um i i've been torn because i don't i don't know I, I feel like four stars is safe. I'm, I've been debating with myself. Is this four and a half good? 
I think four stars at the moment is where I'm going to sit. I four stars in a heart. Um, it, it's definitely something that could go up on rewatch, though. My question, as you know, Pete, no half stars, right? I gave the first movie four stars in a heart. I love the first movie. I like this one better, but because I don't do half stars, no half stars, right? I, uh, I, I'm going to stick with four stars and a heart and just know that I love them both very much. Only saying that because by the time we finish these six movies, I want a little headroom. I'm, this may go up to five stars for me. This may be the five star film of the series. I had that good of a time with it. I'm just not ready to commit. I'm not ready to commit. <laughs> it's hard to say. Yeah, hard to say. Yeah. All right. Well, that uh, puts this at an average of four stars and a heart over in our Letterboxd account, letterboxd.com slash the next reel. And uh, as Pete said, don't forget to visit the next slash Letterboxd to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. Oh, two things that I forgot to bring up. One, breaking the fourth wall. Nora breaks the fourth wall in a cute way where, you know, when I can't remember, it was in uh, Dancer's office when he tells them, no, he tells them what's what and says, I'm going to call the police. And she looks at the camera and goes, see, which was very cute. <laughs> yes. Agreed. <laughs> like, see, he is awesome. And then this was a, this was what I was looking for before the show is the use of body wipes in film. I was trying to figure out like when these started and uh, like uh, exactly like uh, the how often they've been used and everything because there's a, a body wipe. It's not really a body wipe, but it is one of those where a person and I think it was Polly's husband walks directly to the camera until they're like filling the frame to the point where you can't see anything. And then it cuts to the reverse as they walk away from the camera. And it's an interesting like little match cut where you're kind of the camera flips a 180 as they go from one direction to the other. And it's an interesting technique that they used here. And I was just trying to think like, what is the history of that particular example of a body wipe? Because it's not a body wipe where you're wiping the camera and cutting into a different location. It's like the same location, different direction. You see it all the time with cars as they're racing down a road. And then as it passes the camera, you cut to the other it direction to see to it drive away. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I was trying to think like, how often have you seen that done where a person walks into the camera and then walks away from a camera? Because that is it happens here and it was one of those ones that stood out like is there a reason that we needed to do that with Polly's brother at that particular moment i i wasn't sure it's actually a really interesting point like what is the how does that particular visual transition aid his movement in the story i don't think it does like giving us a different location would have been yeah you know, i don't get it i don't get it yeah but but that is a technique that's used often enough to notice it but uh, like i can't right now think of another example i just know that it happens quite a bit yeah what, what would you even call it if it, it's not a body wipe it's a body smash transition yeah. I, I was i was trying to like search for it and and i just kept coming up with body wipe i'm like i don't want a body yeah. wipe what is i know it what a body wipe is yeah. yeah yeah that's really interesting i don't know i don't yeah. know so if anybody knows hit us up let us know so what did you think about After the Thin Man? We would love to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. I've got a big of a, a longer one. Do you mind if I launch with uh, Mr. Liam Dean's? Take off. All right. Liam Dean offers a five-star heart review of this movie. One of my biggest issues with Knives Out, which I got a few, is that it missed that pivotal scene in any successful murder mystery, the final reveal. I understand Ryan Johnson was doing that whole subverting expectations thing, but you got to know that sometimes things are done because they work. A good murder mystery has you guessing who it is until the final reveal, a gathering of every suspect in one room while the detective recaps the murderer's plan, all while waiting and watching for someone to slip and give themselves away. This is why this movie, and like four of the other Thin Man movies, still bests knives out for me. The killer's reveal in After the Thin Man remains my favorite of any murder mystery I've seen. And of course, you can't go wrong with William Powell and Myrna Loy's chemistry. Unmatched. Hoping to find a Norrell Charles in my life, my ultimate comfort movie and series. This is the best of the six. Ooh, best so, of the six. Best of the six. That makes me just a little nervous. I don't like <laughs> I don't like peaking so early. Yeah. But that's why I gave true. Headroom in my four star and a heart review. So what do you that got? That is true. That is true. I have a two and a half star right up the middle by Nathan Cardiff, who had this to say. Some great Jimmy Stewart work, but tough to combat the shoehorned musical number and period racism. Eesh. Twenty minutes longer than its predecessor for no good reason. Weird Asta and Mrs. Asta comic relief. Uh, yeah, the period racism we didn't really talk about. You know? Yeah, I had that in my notes. I feel like in this movie, you kind of got to go in with just a flag on it that says this is a movie with period racism. This is the Lychee Club. It is a club with a hyper stylized and stereotypical Chinese boss and a bunch of showgirls that are arguably maybe some Chinese, but mostly made up as Chinese. It's not it's not pretty. And it is also the 30s. And lines when uh, there were a few that Nick threw out. I'm like, oh, yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Nick. Don't do oh, that. Nick. Yeah. There's some of that. That Rough. is one of those things that is unfortunate, but uh, yeah. definitely worth noting and being aware of. So, yeah, there you go. For sure. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today.